Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week's episode we'll be discussing Theresa May's trips around Europe to try and figure out what Brexit looks like and what is going on with the Hinkley Point nuclear power project. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by Janine Ganesh, the FT's political commentator, Tony Barber, our Europe editor, economics writer Martin Sanbu, Kieran Stacey, energy correspondent, and Nick Butler, who writes the FT's energy and power blog. Thank you all for joining. The new British government has been jetting around the world this week to try and drum up support for, you guessed it, Brexit. Prime Minister Theresa May has been on a tour of Europe, offering a branch of friendship to Poland, Italy and Slovakia. The new International Trade Secretary Liam Fox has been a bit further afield, going across the Atlantic to begin informal trade talks, only to be slapped down by his American counterparts. So, Janan Ganesh, are we beginning to see some kind of Brexit strategy here for Mrs May's government? The idea to try and soften up people around Europe put an olive branch out to further afield countries, or is this all uncoordinated background noise? They are trying to cultivate European capitals and soften people up and probe ideas. I wouldn't call that a strategy. And the whole point of this summer was to arrive at a strategy via a Tory leadership election. So you would thrash out between a hardcore Brexiteer like Andrea Leadsom and uh, a sort of relatively moderate person like Theresa May what the best model of exit is decide how plausible it is and then set about a diplomatic process of achieving it. Because that whole process, that leadership election didn't happen and we had a coronation of Theresa May, the debate hasn't happened and you've got a new prime minister who doesn't just lack a sort of formal electoral mandate, which I think is no real problem, but got the job without establishing her position on, even in rough terms, what Brexit would look like. So all of these continental visits, I think, are attempts by her to just begin the process of probing rather than executing a strategy that had been arrived at in advance. And this aim to activate Article 50 in early 2017 means they better get their skates on quite quickly, that if they're spending the summer just going around and not getting a strategy together, when is it going to happen? You know, Christmas? Yeah, and the longer she leaves it before triggering Article 50, and there is some talk that it might stretch into even the spring and summer of next year, the more pressure she will be under from Brexiteers, who understandably will think, hang on, the country has voted... And you may not have to trigger Article 50 the day after the referendum, but you can't leave it for very much longer than, say, January of next year. But to do that would almost require, I think, a fully fleshed out idea of what she'll ask for in those negotiations, because they are time limited. And I can't see them arriving at anything for a while yet. Tony Barber, what kind of reception has Mrs May had around Europe? She seems to be taking this kind of quite soft approach. She was talking about the great bonds between Italy and the UK. Are people willing to work with her? What's the kind of will there from both sides? I think there's more mood music, shall we say, than substance at this point. She wasn't a particularly experienced politician on the international stage before becoming prime minister and wasn't that well known 
among European colleagues. So a lot of this is simply a getting-to-know process. I think her visit to Poland, though, was particularly important because of the very large numbers of Polish citizens who live and work in the UK, some 850,000. And the Polish government was looking for assurances from Theresa May that there would be no discrimination in the future against those Poles in Britain. But beyond that, the Polish government would also be rather interested, I think, in seeing as close as possible a British connection to the EU in the future, not least because Britain has been a net contributor to the EU budget, and it's out of that EU budget that Poland receives very, very substantial regional aid subsidies. One of the things that I found interesting was one of the big sort of controversial areas in these negotiations is going to be the rights of European citizens in Britain and British citizens in Europe. Now, when she gave a press conference with the Italian Prime Minister, she essentially admitted that there's a bargaining chip there, that she will say, we will allow European citizens in Britain up to a certain cut-off point to stay if you protect the rights of Britain's in Europe. And that's a very strong thing for Poland as well, isn't it? Yes, it is. But I think there are very substantial numbers of Italians in the UK as well. I mean, it might not have been such a politically sensitive issue as as Poles or other Central Eastern Europeans, but there are nevertheless very large numbers of Italians, Spaniards, French. I think that this has to be handled with great tact and delicacy on both sides, uh, the risk of some sort of populist poison entering the discussion and handling of this is there and it's in the interest of both sides to steer clear of it. Well, Martin Sambo, you produced an excellent punk FT video that I'd recommend all our listeners go and watch about the kind of Brexit Britain could have and the various different options. One thing we have seen emerge this week is the difference between hard and soft Brexit, as I believe we have termed it. Hard would be quitting all EU institutions, no EA, no customs union, nothing to do with the ECJ, while soft would be some form of ongoing relationship with those. And there is this bit of a split here that Mrs May has been talking about the softer approach while Liam Fox, who is in America, will come to that in a moment, and David Davis, who's the Brexit secretary, are talking a much harder one. Which of those do you think ultimately it's going to be? You know, you asked Janan whether there was a strategy going on, and there can't be a strategy until you know what goal you want to accomplish. And it's only really now, we're two weeks into a new government, and it's only in those two weeks that those in charge have even begun to formulate, articulate what the trade-off is. Uh, And that's why the Prime Minister's trips have indeed been mostly about mood music. That's important. Mood matters in negotiations. And also, I think, uh, a degree of uh, self-education and learning curve, just understanding what are the combinations of things Britain might want that are actually possible to have together. And so the very general trade-off is the more you want to trade, the more you're going to have to accept rules that are set in common. It's not just freedom of movement. That's a big part of it. But it's all kinds of other things, product regulations, labor regulations, all these things that make the EU a free trade area on steroids, if you like, the deepest, most integrated trading area in the world. And that's something that's only now becoming clear to the people have to decide and then sell it to the people. So Brexit means Brexit, we're told, but we still don't know what Brexit means. And it could be as you pointed out, something that's quite close to the EU that would preserve the trade ties, but it would require a lot of integration in terms of rule setting. Again, not just freedom of movement or something close to it, but also rules being set in Brussels. Or you can have less of both. And they still don't know, I don't think. I think the point about exactly what comes with access to the single market is hugely important. You have to remember that before 
the main Eurosceptic grievance with the EU was immigration. It was labour market regulation and bits of product market regulation. So in the 1990s, if you were a Tory Eurosceptic backbencher or a British tabloid that was Eurosceptic, the things you would focus on were working time directive, the shape of bananas, all the fishing. Absolutely, fisheries policy. Stuff that didn't actually mention immigration. And the immigration grievance didn't really take off until post-2004 when the big waves came in from Central and Eastern Europe. So were we to do what even someone like Daniel Hannan, a convinced Eurosceptic, wants to do, which is reach some kind of accommodation with Europe where we have some market access, that does not just mean accepting free movements. It means accepting all the things that Eurosceptics were exercised by over the past 25 years in products and labour market laws. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, it touches on the point here of what the anti-EU forces uh, describe as regaining control of your country. Well, in the real world, the closer your access to the European market, the more you have to accept common standards and rules of the set to keep that market functioning. Can I just give one example on this issue, which we heard about this tiff in the government this week about the customs union, where the Secretary for International Trade, Liam Fox, has insisted that at least Brexit must mean leaving the customs union. Now, you have to be a bit of a trade geek to know the difference between a customs union and a free trade area. But essentially, a customs union is about having common barriers against third parties. A free trade area is about barriers or removing barriers inside the union. Now, I think this is a bit of a sort of false quarrel because if you don't leave the customs union, there's no way Britain can strike its own trade deals with other countries. And that, if anything, was one of the things promised by the Brexiters. It absolutely was. And just to go back to um, Liam Fox there, Janan, so he's been to America. He's very well known. He loves America and he visits there a lot and has links with many Republican politicians. And he has gone out to begin these sort of informal talks. And it was told very rapidly by his US counterpart, a point that seems pretty obvious. We can't start any kind of talk about deals until you know what the EU-UK relationship is going to be. And then, as Martin said, this led to this idea of saying, well, we would leave the customs union. They know what can Liam Fox actually do then for the next four years until we've left the EU and we know if we're going to have a customs union. And I think it's probably quite likely we will leave the customs union. It was a key plank, all this talk of free trade deals. He can do so little that I'm surprised the job was created immediately. And Theresa May didn't wait a couple of years to set up the job and give it a proper office and staff it, which, by the way, will be a problem given the lack of technical expertise in trade negotiations that you have in a country which hasn't done its own trade negotiations for a generation or two. I think he can do incredibly little, and he's having to resort to what are essentially photo opportunities, which is understandable. You know, as Martin said, the mood music matters. And he did it in Canada a few weeks ago, America most recently. Now, he is fairly well traveled anyway and you know he cultivates contacts in washington and a few other capitals quite interested in military and defense affairs my worry and this is something that often happens on the eurosceptic side of the debate is that they cultivate people who are quite likely to agree with them on brexit anyway so the american right select senators in washington rather than the received opinion in those capitals, which has always been much more sceptical about the idea of Brexit at all, and doubly sceptical about the idea that Britain can have favourable trade terms as a country of 60 million people outside of the EU. But I worry that his internationalism is a sort of ideologically coloured one, and you haven't got a trade secretary who has full exposure to the width of opinion on those subjects. Yes, and linked to that as an example of a political figure in Europe that perhaps people like Liam Fox and others wouldn't get along particularly well with was the announcement that Michel Barnier 
the French politician and former European Union commissioner would represent the European Commission in the negotiations about Britain's departure. And this appointment was instantly leapt on by the anti-EU forces on the right and the anti-EU British press to say, ah, look, this is a hostile gesture from Brussels. Actually, Michel Barnier's record is much more balanced than that, I think. But it's an example of how the ground can pretty quickly become treacherous territory for Theresa May if the really anti-EU forces jump on things like this out of nowhere. On the appointment of him, Martin Sambu, it has sort of been recognised by, I think, the British government that this is a sign that he was going to try and drive a hard bargain. I don't know what they would try and do otherwise, but there has been a lot of that sentiment there. Does that tell us anything again, just trying to find something here that's actually concrete about what the Brexit negotiations are going to look like? I think one thing about Michel Barnier is that he has actually had a very technical brief, right? He did financial regulation after the financial crisis for the EU, which means two things, both that he had to work closely with or against, if you like, uh, British interest already, and he's led a very technical uh, department. Both of those, I think, matter in the negotiations. Now, there's some uncertainty about how much the commission because he will be the commission's representative, how much of a say they will have in the negotiations, how much will be run by national governments and the council and so on. It seems like they are preparing for a very serious technical negotiation. And I think that's quite a significant thing we've seen this week, isn't it, Tony, that Theresa May seems very keen to not interact with Brussels and go straight to European leaders. One of her first visits was to Francois de Hollande, Angela Merkel. I don't even know if she's been to Brussels yet or met Jean-Claude Juncker. So is that part of what she's trying to do there to usurp Brussels? Can she do that? Well, I, I think it's not just her. I mean, it's also the most influential national leaders in the EU also want it that way, I would say. I think this is the way Angela Merkel wants to play it, it's the way Francois Hollande wants to play it. There will have to be quite considerable involvement from the Commission and, let's not forget, the European Parliament as well, because any final set of arrangements concerning Britain's departure needs to be ratified by them all. So uh, she'd probably be quite well advised to get or, or her ministers to pay a bit more attention to the European Parliament than has been done in recent years. I think this is significant for Barnier's role too. He was a commissioner in that first commission after Parliament got much more extensive powers, co-decision making. So he is used to working with the European Parliament. He also played quite an important part when there was the debate about whether Britain should keep the right to handle euro clearing business in London. He actually sided with Britain on that point. And now on to Hinkley Point, the big nuclear power station project that has got stuck in the mud yet again. The power plant was set to supply 7% of the UK's electricity, but it's very expensive and has come under a lot of criticism. Now, this is a venture between France and China who are splitting the funding and construction of it. But just as the EDF board voted to go ahead with the project, the British government has paused it and says it will make a final decision in September. So does this pause mean anything and will Hinkley Point ever be built? Kevin Stacey, can you explain why the project has had such a difficult birth and why the government has decided not to go ahead with it, just as EDF said they're fine to go ahead with it? Yeah, we thought we'd finally got there at about 6, 6.30 Thursday night. We thought, right, that's it. The EDF board's finally got their act together and voted very narrowly in the end, 10 to 7, to approve this scheme. And then two hours later, bang, the government statement comes in. Sorry, there's another pause. The problem with this scheme has always been that the design of this nuclear reactor, the European pressurised reactor, is supposed to 
be basically the safest in the world. The reactor has, for example, two 1.3 meter thick concrete shells built around the outside. They're designed, first of all, to make sure if there is any meltdown that nothing escapes outside. And second of all, that you could literally fly a plane into Hinkley Point and it wouldn't actually cause a catastrophic meltdown. The problem with building something that's so big, so complex uh, and has so many safety features built in is there's a lot that can go wrong. So EDF has been building one in Normandy at a place called Flamelville and has encountered numerous problems with that project, all sorts of things from the quality of the concrete not being quite right to actually not being able to nail parts into the concrete because it's too reinforced by steel bars. I mean, it has gone wrong at almost every single level. And as those problems have become clear at Flamanville, so the Hinkley Point project has got further and further delayed. And there's a lot of people in France now saying, wait a second, why are we, because remember, EDF is 85% state-owned, why are we helping to fund a big power project in the UK to bail them out? This doesn't seem like a good deal. So Nick Butler, you've probably been one of the most vocal critics of the Hinkley Point project. Can you explain why you think it's so bad and do you think it will ever be built? I think the basic problem is that it's too expensive. The price of £92.50 per megawatt hour was tentatively agreed in 2013, since when energy prices have fallen. Oil and gas, which is the main competing fuel to nuclear, and now we see a real fall in the cost of renewables. So I think the danger is that the UK would lock itself into a price that was uncompetitive for the next four decades. When that, that's the index-linked pricing system that is, again, is part of the provisional contract. So I can well see why the government are reviewing this. I think the price is one of the reasons for the review. The other is the involvement of the Chinese, not just as investors, but the Chinese want to build their own nuclear station here in the UK at Bradwell in Essex. And I think that that raises serious national security issues. And it's hard to see how the issues on costs or on national security are now going to be reconciled through any review or any renegotiation. How serious are those national security concerns? That There was an interesting piece written by a fellow called Nick Timothy, who is now Theresa May's chief of staff in Downing Street, where he cited those national security concerns as a problem with our relationship with China and this idea of China and notorious cyber hackers and them having some involvement in Hinkley Point does obviously make people feel nervous. As they say, I agree with Nick. I think he's right on, on that. The concern is material. Nuclear stations are surely national strategic assets. And I don't think we should encourage foreign countries with whom we have a complex relationship to get involved in quite that way. I think as investors, that's fine. But as owners and operators and controllers of something which would be part of the crucial national electricity grid, I think the security concerns are very justified. Kieran, is there any alternative to this? You know, could the government just find the magic money tree, put up the money itself or go to another country? China is particularly problematic. Well, there are more than one nuclear power project uh, in the pipeline. So there is one, for example, in Wilver, Anglesey, in uh, the island just off North Wales. There's another one up at Cumbria next to the Sellafield site where there's an existing nuclear power plant. Neither of those at the moment are state-backed, and both of the developers of those are jumping up and down saying, you've got problems with Hinkley Point, how about us? The problem is for those schemes that if Hinkley Point doesn't go ahead, those schemes still need other investors. It is going to be very, very difficult for them to go to other investors and say, hey, come and back UK nuclear, because having seen one project just melt down spectacularly at the last minute, are they really going to want to step in and back a future one? 
And how crucial is this to the UK's energy strategy to say the government comes back in September and says we're not comfortable with the Chinese involvement, therefore the project's not going to happen? What then happens? Because it's this rock and hard wall, isn't it, between carbon emissions and enough power, essentially? Well, look, it's actually quite easy to solve the lack of power issue. You could far less money than this, probably about half the price, build the equivalent amount of gas-fired power. The problem is by doing that, we'd probably not hit our carbon reduction targets. You could also, for maybe slightly less money, build a lot of offshore wind or maybe even onshore wind if you can convince people to give it planning permission. The problem with those, of course, is that if the wind doesn't blow, what then? Nuclear power, the reason that the government has gone after it in such a big way is because it solves those two problems. It is both zero carbon and it will run all the time. It is clean baseload power is what they call it. There pretty much isn't any other solution if that's what you want. And that is the reason it's so expensive. It can be as expensive as it likes because there is no alternative. And Nick, do you agree that that's the key point? of Britain's future power generation. I think uh, Kieran's right. We we should have a mix. I think there's plenty of gas and we could sign a long-term contract for gas supplies within a matter of days that would uh, cover what is needed. I think on the low carbon side, the government should now reconsider its view that it's not going to use government borrowing to support nuclear projects. I think there is a case for the other two nuclear stations that he mentioned to be given direct support. I think if that support had been given to Hinkley, the costs would have been at least 20% lower. So that's part of it. And then I think that using gas could help us to back out some coal quicker than is planned. And then the prospect of some more renewables, particularly offshore wind, is quite attractive and the prices are coming down. So I don't think this is the end of the world. There are alternatives. It's a very difficult, embarrassing moment, particularly for EDF. But I think we'll come through this and we'll still have an energy mix at the end of it. And on the overall figures, can you just explain to us how much money we're talking to build this as well as the power cost? Well, the EDF figure for the cost of building is £18 billion. That figure has been creeping up for the last few years. I think once you actually get into the construction of these big projects, they do tend to cost more than the original estimate. The cost of the subsidy, which would fall on consumers, depends on how other energy prices move. And the most recent estimate is that that could rise as high as 30 billion. These are very large numbers and locking ourselves into that system seems to me the wrong approach. I think, as Kieran said, there is an alternative mixture which we could have, which I don't think would leave us too far short of any emissions targets. And then finally, I suppose, going back to the EDF point at the beginning, that they obviously had this vote. They must be pretty annoyed right now at the situation. And given this odd state of relations between Britain and France at the moment. My understanding from Paris today is that there are quite a number of people in EDF who are rather relieved. It was a very close vote. It's certainly embarrassing for EDF here in the UK. But I think EDF has a lot of problems. They have a lot of issues with the integration of Arriva into the company, which has been pushed on them by the French government. They have high debts, which have led to a credit downgrading. They've a lot of work to do in France. I don't think they needed another big problem. And I suspect in the end, the relief is quite common in their office in Paris. Well, I think that's probably true. There are lots of people in EDF who are relieved, certainly the unions. I've been speaking to senior managers at the company today who said we never should have backed this. In fact, they've been saying that all along. But two people who will definitely not be relieved are Jean-Bernard Levy, the chief executive, and Vincent de Rivas, the chief executive of EDF in the UK. They have both gone out in a very personal way to back this scheme. And I imagine that they, I mean, they 
pretty much forced the vote through last night at board level. They've had to get rid of a chief financial officer and another board member just to get it through. I think they're so committed now, I doubt they'll want to back out. I think they'll want to push this through almost whatever. I understand your point, but I think we're more likely to see top management changes now in EDF because, as you say, they have been at odds with too many people within the established, experienced EDF management team, who I think will now want to see this as a moment where they refocus the company back on the problems that they still haven't solved at home. Well, if that happens before the end of the government review, I would guess that the project will simply not go ahead. If either of those two people lose their jobs, that would be such an enormous blow for the project. I don't think it could survive. If the government does, of course, decide not to go ahead in September, they may well lose their jobs anyway. And then just finally, Nick, you were talking about that mixture of power for the UK to try and get it right between cost and carbon and stable energy. Do you think nuclear should play a role in that and what kind of role if Hinkley Point doesn't happen? I think the challenge for nuclear in a world where energy is plentiful is to be competitive. I think it's safe but it's got to show that it can compete on a long-term cost basis. That requires attention to the financing which is why I think uh, governments like the UK government if they want nuclear they should put their own financing strength behind it. That would have really change the game on Hinkley if they'd done that earlier. They also have to look at getting the costs of the technology down. I think the EPR, Kieran said it earlier, is just too complex, too complicated, and we're going to have to go for these other designs. I think the designs at Wilfer and up in Cumbria are simpler and clearer, and they should be accelerated now. So yes, nuclear should have a share in the total mix if it can compete uh, effectively. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much for all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our World Weekly podcast, which is presented by me, Gideon Rachman, the FT's chief foreign policy commentator. Each week I discuss one of the main political stories of the week with the FT's overseas correspondents and experts. And you can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcast from Wednesdays. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.